Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you and praise you for being an awesome God. We do pray, Father, that we would take hold of the things that you have given us, that we would know, Father, that we'd have an inheritance set aside for us of glory, Father, and not one of shame. I pray, Father, that we would have a sense of fear, a sense of respect for who and what you are, that we would never laugh you off, gaff you off, or just miss you altogether, Father. You are too wonderful, too beautiful, too majestic, Father, to be ignored. I pray, Father, for your spirit to be here tonight in this room. Change our hearts and our minds and that we would be conformed into that image of you. We thank you. We praise you. And we thank you, Lord, again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been going through Proverbs. We said Proverbs is Solomon. Solomon's the wise old man. Been around the block. Been there. Done that. Got the t-shirt is what he would say. I don't think there's too many things you could surprise Solomon with with his life. He had uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He was a guy that uh, was blessed with great riches and wealth. He was a king and understood royalty. Talks about in Ecclesiastes how he was drunk and explored alcohol and drank to its limits. He explored every pleasure and thing of this world. And he comes back to a conclusion in the book of Ecclesiastes to say you got to live for God. That's the only thing that really matters. And here he is, he's sitting down in the book of Proverbs, he's speaking to us truths, wisdom, and he's trying to pass on to us things that can destroy a young man. We said that there's echoes of this, of, of King David, his father, telling King Solomon to be his son, saying, son, pay attention to my words. Dad, David was telling Solomon's son these things, and now Solomon, an old man, is telling you and I. He's saying, look, there's some things that just make sense in the world. There are traps out there, the seductive woman. There are traps out there that you can fall into of people that want to play and party and pleasures that will destroy you. And so you want to listen, turn your ear to these things, and listen to what he says. As he starts off in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, my son, and you can hear that tone as he's speaking to us. He says, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So he's, he's begging us and he says, young man, there's things out there that are going to be a trap, like a, a gazelle, which is like a kind of like a deer type thing. As it's, as it's caught in the sight of a gun from the hunter, run. As a bird that would fall into a trap, he's saying, you're, you're, you're being you know, tricked. Look out. You're, you're not where you think you are. And he's talking about the concept of surety. 
Now, surety may not mean much to you and I, but what it basically means to be surety for somebody else means what we would call being a co-signer, turning around and vouching for a loan to help somebody else get something else they need. It's a tempting little thing when you realize you go through life, you start to build your credit, and people turn around and say you have a credit score and you have life, you know, that uh, you could go out and borrow a line of credit. And uh, someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, I'm trying to buy this car, but I just don't have what it takes. Can you be the co-signer? Can you be surety? Can you back this loan? Guarantee the loan is what you're doing when you sign up to be a co-signer. The first person's credit won't float it. So they're, they're looking for a second person to say, if the first person defaults, who will come alongside and pay that other loan? And it is interesting. I, I think I have done this a couple of times uh, against better counsel. And part of you can say, well, what's the big deal? This other person's going to pay their bills. It's not like it's ever going to really come back to me. If my signature on a piece of paper can help this person get a car, well, so be it. And, and Solomon is, is, is saying, young man, don't fall into that trap of signing up to, to guarantee somebody else's pledge. If they can't float it on their own, well, there's good reason for it. Walk away from it. And what he's saying, he's saying there's, there's a trap that can ensnare you to grab hold of you where your good name is going to be ruined because you stood up and vouched for somebody else. Now, credit is a, a, a wicked, deceptive thing that obviously is, is, is a part of the American lifestyle. Credit is something that works in the, the, the church, and I've seen countless Christians come in and be destroyed, and I mean, yes, destroyed, because they can't fiscally, financially take care of themselves. And it's, a, it's an ugly albatross. It's a monster on your back sometimes, as we see people that definitely know how to get into debt. And, and the mandate for us as Christians, and we'll see this further along where Solomon is talking about and he's saying, don't fall into that trap. Debt can kill and destroy. And to see so many Christians that are fiscally, financially irresponsible is saying that, well, I've been rebuked as a pastor that maybe I don't keep my congregation so fiscally strong. Uh, I believe that as we talk about finances in the church, most people are repulsed by that and said, can you tell me about Jesus and not about my money? And we have a philosophy at Calvary Chapel to keep it uh, online with not telling people how to run their finances and especially not to be getting money from people. But there is also another whole level to the uh, argument that there's a lot of Christians that are very ignorant that they do get into debt they get in way in over their heads, and then they are slave to the system. They're being forced to pay back debt that uh, they cannot pay back. Uh, a couple of things have changed in America as of late, and uh, several of them is some credit card laws that really entice almost everybody to go get a credit card, pay it off, and then they give you this low, low monthly payment. When we first got married, we went to... Sears, we had a one-bedroom apartment, and we had to go get a mattress and box spring. And I can remember we went and we had a, it was a queen-size, you know, type bed. It was $400. We put it on our credit card. 
And uh, so you go, oh, gee, you know, that's only $12 a month. You make the payments of $12 a month on a $400 debt, you know. Uh, two years later, you know, uh, you can look at your debt and you still owe 400 bucks, but you've been paying 12 bucks every month to Sears and you still owe the exact same amount of money. And they love to entice you into these ways of paying so that you do get deeper and deeper and deeper in debt. And uh, it's sad to see that there is a, a level of interest that uh, uh, can accumulate. I had a friend that actually went out and bought a uh, Ford Thunderbird. He bought it used. It was like $12,000. I think he paid on it. He was paying, I think, like $550 a month payment on a $12,000 car, if you can believe that, because his interest rates were like 24.5% interest. He paid on it for two years, $550, and at the end of two years, he missed a couple payments, and he owed $14,000 to the bank. So you go, gee, your car is depreciating, and your debt is increasing, and you're paying every single month. And what Solomon would say is, you're wrong for being in that situation. A Christian to be free from the snares and the traps of debt should be, idealistically, you should always be able to say that I'm never upside down, as they would say, in a vehicle, in a house, in a car, or in any debt. So if you have a vehicle that uh, is worth uh, $10,000 and you go out and borrow $10,000 against it, well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a sin to go out and borrow money if you have something to collateralize it back up that debt. If you, uh, if you go out and borrow $10,000 for a $5,000 vehicle, well, then you're upside down. You're negative, you're backwards, and you're reversed. Hopefully, you owe $5,000 on a $10,000 car so that at any given time, you can liquidate, you can, you can sell your assets, and you can say, I really, I owe no man anything. I have a car payment, yes, but... Uh, I could sell my car, pay off that debt, and I'm still ahead of the game. The problem is when you realize that you have a car that your payments are on that are way more than what it's worth, it starts to become something that strangles you. It's choking you out. You're forced to stay in that vehicle. You're forced to keep your lifestyle. And what that does is it quenches God to come into your life and give you the ability to move. Solomon's looking at this, and he says, guys, this is a trap. This is destructive. This destroys. Several times in the Bible, you see where this thing called uh, uh, usury and interest is charged. Technically, the Jews were not supposed to charge interest one to another. If I lent you $100, you should pay me back $100, not any interest rate. You can see this in Nehemiah. It got to be a problem. In the history of Israel, Israel is a nation, it gets destroyed. God sends in the people to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple after a period of time. Nehemiah is the guy that says, let's go and build the wall. And as he's going in there, all of a sudden there were certain Jews that had property, certain Jews that had money. And one of the things that stopped the work of rebuilding the wall was some of the Jews came up and said, man, we're just sick and tired of working. We're demoralized. We don't care to work. And Nehemiah goes, what's the problem here? And as he turns around and he says in chapter 5, the people are crying out. They're going, well, man, you know, we're just so far in debt to the other brothers that have money 
they're charging us interest rates that uh, uh, demoralize us from even working at all. They own all the property. And so here's a group of Jews going in to rebuild Jerusalem. Some of them have got money and they're lending to all the other ones so that sooner or later, all these guys are just saying, man, I'm just, you know, I owe my soul to the company store. I have no reason to live. I have no, no desire to go forward. And it stopped the progress of rebuilding. Nehemiah goes in and he tells, he grabs all these guys who had all the money, all the people that were lending to everybody else. He goes, what are you guys doing? You're charging. And it was interestingly enough, a 1%, a 1 in 100th percent interest rate. Now for you and I, I would jump at a 1% loan today. But Nehemiah says, how dare you charge interest? How dare you? You know, we're sitting here trying to do this wonderful work, and you are destroying these men's soul and motivation out of a banking institution just to see how it can cripple a society. And Nehemiah says, throw it all out. He just preaches, you know, fire and brimstone to these guys. These guys turn around, they repent, and they say, look, we're sorry. No more interest. We'll rip up all the debts. We're all bro brothers and friends trying to get along. Let's just continue to back. And you see everybody celebrating and having joy. Biblically, the concept of interest one to another is wrong. I, I would think that we as a church would never lend money if we were to operate. I don't ever like to lend money. If someone comes up to me and says, Pastor Dave, I just need $100, you know, blah, 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 blah. I got to sit back, scratch my head, and says, well, if I couldn't take that $100 bill, light it on fire, and burn it at this time, and I'd be fine if I did, then I shouldn't give it. But if I've got the $100 and you need it, well, then I'm going to give you that $100, and, and I don't ever want to try and expect to or to receive money back. Nothing will ruin a friendship more than lending money one to another. It destroys, it rips apart and, and it separates good friends when you lend money back and forth. I, I hate to think that way. You know what I mean? I like to think, well, gee, my brother needs 100 bucks. I can lend it to him. Sure, he can pay me back, and I'm sure it's just going to make us better friends. Every single time I have been played the fool. It's just, it, it's just ridiculous. And what you should say is, here, brother, take the money, and, and if you feel led, then throw it back in the box or give it back whenever you want. But I don't ever want to sit down and talk about this again. And, and, uh, and sometimes brothers have paid back and sometimes things have worked out. But if I've ever said, hey, now, where's my money? What are you doing with my money? Boy, that's the first, the first thing to drive somebody right out of your life. And I have a philosophy. You see people, they, they make an effort to beg to borrow cash. Pastor Dave, they, you get the phone call. Pastor Dave, I've got to talk to you, man. Well, about what? I, I just need to sit down and talk to you. So we sit down, we have a cup of coffee. Pastor Dave, I'm just telling you, here's my whole story, here's my whole plea. I'm going to make this whole sales pitch to Pastor Dave to get the $100. And I can understand that, and I appreciate the courtesy, and I can sit down and write a check and you know, help somebody out with 100 bucks. But my philosophy then is it's not my job to turn around and to beg or to borrow that money back from you. Don't turn me into a beggar to say, can I please have my $100? Can I please have my $100? Hey, how about, a, I noticed you're a couple weeks late on your, your payment towards that $100. See, now all of a sudden it's my burden to go chase you around, and all that does is it just chases the people away. And then for a $100 bill, you've lost a friend. And I'm like, man, it's never, ever worth it. It's a trap. It's a snare. And yet we can feel like we want to go into that constantly. 
same thing happened. You thought the Jews were bad with 1% interest. If you can remember the story in Genesis when, you know, Joseph saw the dream of Pharaoh about the seven fat cows and the seven lean cows, and he said there's seven good years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And Joseph said, well, you know what you want to do is you want to start taking 20%, 20% from everybody and uh, hoarding it all away in the years of plenty. And then in the years of famine, you'll be able to get by. So Pharaoh says, great idea, good going. And then all the Egyptians, all the Egyptians, the Egyptians, the local people that weren't the Jews even, they turned around and they're sitting down there saying, hey, we're starving to death, we're here. And it says that they had to sell their land, their souls, and everything that they had with their cattle just to be able to eat because of the tax and the usury that was, you know, thrown onto the other Egyptians. And that was a 20% tax. So at the end of the seven years, Pharaoh could say, look, I own everybody, everything, everything is mine, and all the things are going on here. And you go, and you go, man, a 20%. And that's a huge tax. I think today it's up to around 24%. So it says, go to, uh, he says, uh, my son, if you become usury for your friend, read it again. If you have shaken hands in the pledge for a stranger. So you're going up to somebody and you're saying, hey, and I admit if you're going to be a co-signer, you're a dad, you want to co-sign for your daughter, your, your son, and, and say, hey, I'm going to help them. You know, that's in the family. But when you're separating yourself outside the family to a stranger, somebody outside the family, you're snared by the words of your mouth. You're going to have to back up your words, and you're going to have to pay that debt. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So he says what? He says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. He says, the ants which have no captain, overseer, or ruler. So it's interesting. An ant, and it's interesting if you think about an ant up there uh, in Chuck's study Bible, he talks about that the tiny little brain of an ant. So if you think about a little ant and how big is his brain, and he says, yet an ant is smart enough to know how to save. And I like this. It has no captain, no overseer or ruler. And so it, it, it doesn't, it's not being told what to do. It can figure it out on its own. It says it provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard, when you will rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler in your need like an armed man. So here it is. We can sit down there and says, you know what? There's a tendency inside of us to be a sluggard, to be lazy. I'll just sleep away my life. And I'll just sit down there and waste away my life. And what Solomon is saying, he says, man, get up and do some work. Work with your hands. Do something and accomplish something. One of the problems with banking, interest, credit, is there are a lot of people that want to make money off of someone else's back. That's just as much a sin compared to saying, I, want to, I don't want to make money off of somebody else's labors. I want to make money off of my labors and the things that I do. 
have a sense of self-satisfaction at the end of the day, that I put in a hard day's work, that I worked hard to do the things that need to be accomplished, and when there are times of plenty, I will store, for when there are times of lean and thin. Simple, very simple. And so Solomon is saying, he says, you be careful, you know, how many of us can go, oh, you know, I'll just sit here just a, a little bit longer. You guys ever have that when you're sleeping in the morning? Alarm clock goes off and you go, oh, just another minute, just another five minutes. You hit the snooze alarm and then you hit the snooze alarm and you hit the snooze alarm. And you go, man, it's amazing on how one minute turns into five minutes can turn into all of a sudden you're an hour late for work. And you go, you know, hey, it's like you have to really say uh, all of a sudden, if you can all of a sudden be crumbled and crushed and destroyed, you have to quickly be able to say, look, I want to be diligent. I want to be smart enough. I want to be a little bit more ahead of the ant. He says, though, verse 12, a worthless person. So what's a worthless person? Someone who has no value. Someone who hasn't saved aside their money. A wicked man walks with a perverse mouth, he winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers, perversity is in his heart, he devises evil continually, he sows discord, therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. So interesting, here's this guy. What is he doing? He's scheming. He has a perverse mouth. He wants to sit down and play that little shell game where you got the little shells and you can say, ah, look, you know, the hand is quicker than the eye. I want to sit down and juggle things around so that I wind up on top. I want to manipulate. I want to struggle. I want to, I want to trick people out of their money so that I can have a life of ease. That's a wicked, perverse, worthless man. See, he winks with his eyes, right? He's always making that deal. He's saying one thing, but really he means another. He shuffles his feet. The guy's got the real quick step. He just knows how to outdance everybody, to always stay on top so he can manipulate everybody. He points with his fingers, so he always likes to point out everybody else's flaws. That's the most common, oldest trick in the book. If I sit down there and show you what a you know loser you are, I, I can somehow or another evade the issue of what a loser I am. An honest man would turn around and says, look, I know what I need to do and I'm going to work hard to get there and I'm not going to try and take the shortcut to get ahead all the time. I'm going to do what is responsible in front of me. Worthless people take shortcuts, manipulate, shuffle, and trick their way to the top. A perversity is in his heart. It's upside down to be perverse. And, uh, and he de devises evil continually. So instead of sitting back and saying, man, I'd like to finish my job and I'm taking a little job satisfaction in what I do, he's going to be sitting down there thinking, how can I get out of work? How can I sit down and make somebody else do my job? How can I sit down there and uh, 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 trip somebody else up so that I can get ahead? He sows discord. That's so the two brothers fight. He's going to be planting, he's planting problems so that he looks good. Therefore, his calamity, the problems in his life, shall come upon him suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. So, I find it interesting that one of the concepts that Solomon is talking about is that really he's saying, you know what, 
the problem here with your finances, with your trickery, with certain people, is that they're creating an illusion, a false sense of security. They're on thin ice, and they don't know it. If you could picture that scene, you're walking out on the ice, and you think, well, you know, it looks like, you know, this stuff's six foot deep. I should be able to drop a tank on this ice, and I'd be fine. Well, if you're on thin ice, you wouldn't know it. You're sitting down there saying, man, I'm just trying to get through life, and everything's fine, but then all of a sudden, the ice crashes and crumbles, and you're in the water, drowning in ice water. And, and so many people, they're so busy shuffling, lying, tricking, manipulating their finances, saying, you know what? Hey, if I just go get a line of credit, I can have the car tomorrow and I'll pay for it tomorrow. I'll have the car today and I'll pay for it tomorrow. You're on thin ice. If, you're, if you think that you're going to have a temporary satisfaction with your, your credit line, it all catches up to you. If you think you can just sleep away life and you don't have to work, or if you're going to be causing other people to stumble. And I like this, verse 16, it says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. So I find this interesting. If you know the, the, the kind of code of sin, you know, there are, there are sins, there are iniquities, and then there are transgressions. Um, and I had that explained to me as, you know, sin means that you're missing the mark. So if it's an archery turn, you can sit down and say, well, there's a target. I want to sit down there. And, I, I, and no matter how hard I try, I, I can take 100 shots and I just can't hit that target. The, the bullseye is too small. And no matter how hard I try, I can't hit the target. That's what we call sin. And iniquity is saying, you know, I see the target there but I'm not even really trying to hit the target. I'm just shooting off into the air, and I, I, I'm not actually aiming for it. Where transgression is, is to say, you know what, I see the target, it's over there, but now I'm going to go way over here and go this way, because this is what I want to do with my life. I'm deliberately going against the things of God. Where an abomination is something that God says, take that even one step worse if you can and just says this is the thing that tweaks god off when this happens god is bent and you have upset and angered he's using the word hate so these six things the lord hates so it's not oops oh gee poor you can't can't quite get your way through it he goes yes he goes seven are an abomination to him and i always find that expression rather strange it goes six things that god that god hates and then he turns around and goes, no, let me throw another one in seven. <laughs> and I don't know why when you're reading Proverbs, there's a lot of that in here where it goes, six things, three things God's really mad, but oh, four things, and I got another one. <laughs> and so if you would, he's got to throw in this in here, and he says, you know, this is what the God hates. He goes, what does he hate? What does he hate? You know, is it homosexuality? Is it divorce? No. He says, a proud look. That attitude of just sitting back with your cocky little smile, thinking that you're better than everyone else. God hates a proud look. God hates a lying tongue to deliberately turn around and to lie. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. 
Man, God is sitting down there and he says there's so many people that just look so proud and arrogant because they're living on thin ice. They think they can cut and get above and get around every issue in life. The Bible is speaking just very honestly in a dollar and cents balance sheet kind of way to say, man, you know, pay your bills, work hard, do what you're supposed to do. And so many people say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I want the easy path. I want this. And then when they get it, they have that look of arrogance. They're going to lie, cheat, and steal to get there and stab their brother in the back. Innocent blood, devising wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, and a false witness who speaks lies. God just, he, I think God just cringes when he sees certain people out there just lying in order to make themselves look good. That aggravates God. And then it would come down to that final thing, the one who sows discord among the brethren. And you, you can see people come in to the brethren, the church, and all they want to do is pick apart every single person in the church and rip them apart. They want to almost say, well, it's the Smiths against the Joneses here at the church. You, ever, you go to a church and it's like, you know, as soon as you walk in, they're like, well, which side are you on? Are you on with the Smiths or with the Jones? There's a, there's a war going on. And there's certain people that want to propagate that, lift that up, and they enjoy the fact that, you know, churches could be ripped apart. They're sowing discord. They're sowing hatred. They, they run around and they go, well, do you know what Susie said? And then, oh, well, let me tell you what you think about what Susie said. And then they go back to Susie and say, Susie, you know what so-and-so said about what you said? And it just rips and tears apart churches. And, and, the, and the person that enjoys that, shame on you. There should be a time to forgive to love and to heal. That should be a time to say, you know what? You know, church is made up out of a whole bunch of sinners like me. And you know what? Uh, they've got problems, but I've got more. And I'm not here to throw a rock at anyone. And you can just see where all of a sudden that someone who's going to sow discord and rip apart other people so that they can get an easy pass, God says he hates. That's an abomination. So he says, he says, my son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproof of instructions are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Not prey with an A, but prey with an E. She'll pounce upon you and devour you. And I love this next verse. Maybe this will be one that we can memorize. It says, Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? That's the truth. 
Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared, burned? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. So here it is, you know, there's this concept of, of look out for the thin ice. And now he's throwing it back into a woman in the adulteress. And you're saying, you know what? There are things out there that look tempting. They look desirable. You bite into that, you grab hold of it, and you want to start playing with it, you're going to get burned. And I love that. Can a man take fire into his bosom? Do you think you can just sit down there and play and toy with ideas? Can you sit down and think, well, I'm going to go flirt over here with this gal. Can I go over here and be surety for somebody else? Can I sow you know, seeds of discord and rip things apart and think, well, I'm getting away with it. It's okay. And the deception, thinking, well, you know what? We can go play with sin, and it's all right. I can go do the things. That... It's okay. Solomon says, can a man play with fire and not get burnt? Can you take that into your bosom? Can you put that into your heart? You don't think that's going to come back and rip you to shreds? Sonny boy, you can hear him. He's leaning over in his throne, and he's looking down at us, and he's just saying, son, don't play with these things. Run from these things. Learn from the ant, if you would. A, a, a pea brain ant. No, a pea brain would be huge for an ant. He's got one one-hundredth of a pea brain for an ant-sized brain. He's smart enough to figure it out. And man in his stupidity will turn around and have this sense of deception. Oh, I'm okay. I'm all right. I don't care. I can sit down there and rip things apart, tear things apart. I don't care. I can sit down and go get in debt. I'll pay it off. I don't care. I can go fool around with my neighbor's wife. I don't care. I'm just having some fun. And Solomon is just sitting down there crying out. He says, man, you can't do that. It says, verse 30, he says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Now, I don't know if it's, he's saying, now, people, I'm telling you, don't despise a thief if he steals. I don't think he's commanding that as saying, don't despise. You see a guy come in and you're owning a grocery store, the poor guy's starving to death, and he steals a little banana from you. Don't go up and hate him. I, I think he's making a, a statement to say, you know, most people won't, you know, they can show a little mercy to a guy if he was stealing, you know, just because he was, was hungry, right? He says people, he's saying most people do not despise a thief if he steals to uh, satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet when he is found, I find this interesting, he must restore sevenfold. So even if you can show mercy to somebody, he's saying that the guy still needs to pay back sevenfold. So I don't know if you're selling bananas for a dollar and a guy comes up and steals, you know what I mean, uh, a banana from you, and you go, hey, look, you thief. And he goes, well, I'm starving to death. And the point is, well, you still got to pay it back. And I always say, well, how's the guy going to pay it back? If he had $7 to pay back the $1 he owed, right, for the banana that he stole, he probably wouldn't be stealing it in the first place, right? <laughs> and you go, no, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying he has to pay back sevenfold for that. If, if he's going to go out and, and sin a dollar's worth of stolen banana, he's going to pay back sevenfold for it. How is he going to pay it back? Labor, sweat, tears, pain. And, and, and what we need to understand is what he's saying is, is even if you are a hungry guy starving to death and you got busted, you still got to pay the price sevenfold. 
And whatever your excuses in life that you think that you don't have to pay the price to do the work that is in front of you because you're a sluggard and would like to sleep and make money off of everybody else's back besides your own sweat and blood, and you'd like to lie, cheat, and manipulate to get ahead, you're not going to get around it. That's what he's saying. You're going to pay back sevenfold. There is no shortcuts in life. There is no quick path to success that you can turn around and say, well, I was just born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Everything comes easy to me, and I don't ever have to work or sweat or to do anything. Uh, that's a fallacy that's just never, it's a fantasy out there that's just never in reality. We have to put in a day's work, turn on our brain, think about the things that are in front of us, and be involved with what we're doing. And he says, you know what? There's no shortcuts. And if you want to sit down there and think that you're getting ahead, no matter how hungry you are, you're going to steal a dollar's worth of bananas. You're going to do $7 worth of dishwashing for the guy in the you know, back of the house. It says, he may, have to, he may have to give up all the substance of his house. He will be crushed and destroyed until he's exacted. Uh, for the debt. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so, he who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. So if you're going to go out there, and he's putting this in context to sleeping with your friend's wife, I guess, and uh, you get caught that all of a sudden there's going to come a day when uh, the guy says, you didn't just steal my banana here, you stole my wife and you slept with her. And the jealous husband is not going to be able to appease with seven bananas payback. He's going to be angry. He's going to be upset. He's going to hate you to the day he dies. You've created a problem, and there's going to be huge issues here. So there are things in life, if you would, that are not even tangible to be able to pay back sevenfold. There are relationships that when they're broken, and that when people are hurt because of sexual activity, because of things that happen, it causes much more damage than we're ever able to repay. Jesus said that if you've caused one of these little ones to stumble, you've taken a little one and you've caused them to stumble, it's better that you just take a rock, throw it around your neck, and jump into the lake and drown. Because you know what? You can't pay back that debt of seeing one innocent person stumble. And what we have to do is we look at the situation in front of us and say, these are people, these are relationships. We count on one another. My work, my labor can better the group. If I look at the group and say, how can I divide it, rip it apart, step on everybody so that I can have an easy day where I can sleep in it at the end of the day and I can avoid work, God says he hates it. He hates it. And there's a, a, a concept, a, a thing inside of us that, that we want to be able to say, well, give me the easy, I want the shortcut, Lord. I want the easy route. I want to, I want to sit down there and, and, and avoid my day of work. We love, I mean, Americans, we scheme and love to get out of work. I can hardly wait till I retire, and I can just stop working. I can hardly, I want to, you know, fall on the job and break my neck so I can get out of, I can get out of work early. 
And, and we, we're always saying, I want that, that gravy trip that's going to get me, and, and I'll be so happy if I could just, you know, sail away and never have to work again. And, and you know, God's saying, do your job. He'll take care of you. He'll provide you. You'll have the best life if you would just do what you're supposed to do. But that thing of debt, the, the, that idea that we're going to go into debt and somehow or another we'll have something, we'll pay for it later. And God's saying, pay for it now. Look at that temptation as you go in and you say, man, I could just run up something on credit cards and I could just, who cares if I ever pay it back? I want it now. But how wise would we be if we could just say, well, you know what? I really can't afford that right now. I'm sorry. I'll say no. I'd like to go have this. I could go throw it on a credit card and have it now and pay for it tomorrow. But a wise man would say, can I afford it now? And if I can't afford it now, I'll say no to myself. And, and if I really want something, I'll get up and I'll work a little bit extra for it. But somehow or another, that deception, and it's that thin ice that we walk on that says, well, I'm okay, everything's fine. I can go have my neighbor's wife. I can go have the things that I want in my life. And I don't want to sit down there and pay the man. Well, Solomon's saying, the only one that hurts is you. You're never going to get ahead. If you, if you do a day's work for a day's wage, you can go home and sleep. At the end of the day, you're way ahead of the game. Now, I can remember when I was in high school, and I have worked, I think it was like 21 days in a row. Not much, but when you're in high school and you go through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You know, and I don't know if you ever had the glorious life of being a dishwasher, scraping everybody's food scraps into the trash. And at the end of the day, you always come home stinking and sweating and smelling like the grease on the floor. And it's in your hair, it's in your face, it's in your sweat pores. And, uh, you know, you work there, and I can remember having to close the bar down at 12 o'clock when they would give you the last call for the dishes that were there, going out at midnight, coming back in, the restaurant would close at 12, and I think I'd be coming home for around 2.30, and on my bike, I'd have to ride my bicycle home, you know, and, and get in the door at uh, 2.30, 3 o'clock on a Friday, Saturday night, and then wake up and turn around and do it all over again, and... Uh, you know, you do that so many days. There's, there, there's something about working that pace, but all of a sudden it's amazing that when you get a day off, you get one day off, you're like, oh, man, this is paradise, you know? A whole day off. And I, I'm telling you, I have enjoyed that. And I will tell you that there is more joy in that one day off than there is when you can say, I've done nothing for seven days. And now I've had seven days off, eight days off, and I've had time where I've been unemployed for two months. And I haven't worked a day in two months, and you're sitting down there worrying and stressed, and you're miserable for two months. And you'd like to be able to say, well, wait a second, Dave. Why is it when you have two months off, you're not really super happy? You're miserable when you got two months off in between jobs. But if you work 20 days in a row and you're 21st or 22nd days off, you really enjoy that. And there's a concept inside of you and I that says, if I work and if I get that day off, then I enjoy that day off. There's, there's a sense of inner satisfaction that's worth all that amount of work. 
And there's nothing worse than saying, man, I'm sitting around, I'm unemployed, I, nobody wants me, I'm miserable, and oh, I just feel terrible, and I'm not doing anything. And it eats and it grates at you, and you're miserable. Why is that? Because we should be, if we work, we do what's there, we'll enjoy that. Because we somehow or another feel like, I can relax because I, I got this coming to me. And when you're unemployed for a couple months and you're sitting around and going, I don't have nothing coming to me, I'm just worried, you're miserable. Been in that situation too. It's just hard. And, and, and Solomon is appeasing to say, go ahead, do a day's work. Go ahead, enjoy your time off when you get it. Go ahead, don't be indebted to anybody. Don't sign up for anybody. Don't think that you're going to rip anything apart. There's no shortcuts. There's no getting ahead. Just do what's in front of you. And, 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 and Solomon is saying, that's the joy of life. You know, look at that. You know, you, you want to mess around and uh, for, for one night with a prostitute or whatever he says, an adulterous woman, you're left to a guy with a crumb of bread. You think, oh, I'm going to go get this woman. And what do you get? You get divorced. You get this, you get that, you're, you're reduced to a crumb of bread. You're like, oh, Lord, I just, I just want this. I thought I'd have such pleasure if I had that woman, but now I, all I got is this trash. And, and there's so many people today in our church that are reduced to a crumb of bread. They're, they're just trying to just say, all I got is this measly little life. And God doesn't want you to have that measly life. He wants you to have a good life. He wants you to have satisfaction. He wants it so you can look back at your life and say, man, I've lived my life. I've enjoyed my life. I've worked hard for the things I've gotten. And I can face the grave with a sense of satisfaction. And you can't get that by a shortcut. Amen? Questions, comments, criticisms? Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.